<laughs> oh, that weird Al Yankovic. He's such a card, isn't he? Oh, hi, everybody. This is Janitor Sean, and uh, just wanted to start today off with a little bit of a rant. Yes, indeed. Well, because I find myself having to constantly correct articles. I'm one of those people, one of those jerks on Facebook who, whenever there's a news story posted that has maybe a nitpicky detail wrong, I'm the first one to correct and say, that's not right. This is the correct information. Well, you know what? Now that I have a microphone, I can actually do that with my own time. Ha ha ha. But case in point, you may remember earlier this year, Masaya Nakamura, who is the founder of Namco. Namco being the video game company that gave us Pac-Man, Dig Dug, Tinkle Pit, Galaga, Rally X. Well, he died, unfortunately, and there were articles going around that said, the creator of Pac-Man has died. Um, no. Masaya Nakamura did not create Pac-Man. That was Toru Iwatani, who is alive, and as far as I can tell, well. And of course, there's been some more news lately that I've had to correct, also Pac-Man related. You may have heard the announcement that Weird Al Yankovic, who you just heard a moment ago, has been given approval to release his parody of the Beatles' Taxman, a.k.a. Pac-Man. And the common lore is that this is an unreleased song. Um, no, it is not. It is not unreleased. In fact, I am holding here in my hand a legal published CD that has that song on it. Don't remember when it was from. It was probably maybe about 15 years ago. Specifically, Basement Tapes Volume 4. And what's Basement Tapes Volume 4? Well, I'm glad you asked. Fans of Dr. Demento, if they join his fan club, which is called the Demento Society, there is a membership package that includes a CD. And Basement Tapes Volume 4 is the CD that went to members... Um, geez, wow, I don't remember what year it was. Might have been 2000, 2001, I don't remember. But it was the CD that went out to members whatever year that was. Starting with Basement Tapes Volume 2, there was a previously unreleased Weird Al Yankovic recording on every volume. Because, hey, let's face it, Weird Al Yankovic and Dr. Demento, well, if it weren't for Dr. Demento, none of us would be talking about Weird Al Yankovic, and Al, to this day, is very appreciative of that. He thanks Dr. Demento on all his records, all his videos and everything. Dr. Demento is in a couple of his videos, actually. Anyway, if you open up Basement Tapes Volume 4, number 4, whatever you want to call it, and you look at the track list, you will see most songs are listed in uppercase letters, all capitalized, with the artist in title case. Well, in title case entirely is what says, and I quote, bonus track by Weird Al Yankovic, and that's all it says. And the liner notes that came with the CD did not provide any information about the song itself. It just had a brief boilerplate bio about Weird Al Yankovic. So when I played the CD, I was thrilled, number one, because I love Weird Al Yankovic like anybody else should, and number two, I'm a big Beatles fan. And when I heard Pac-Man, I was like, oh my God, this is so awesome. And my first thought was, okay, he probably anonymized the song a little bit on the liner notes and the CD liner, probably to not attract the attention of the lawyers of the Beatles company, Apple. We're not talking about Apple computers. We're talking about what was what used to be known as Apple Records. Now it's just Apple, I think. I don't know. There's another can of worms that I'm not going to get into right now. 
So that's what I was thinking until the following year when Basement Tapes number five came out and there was also the exact same thing, a track listed as bonus track by Weird Al Yankovic. And again, more liner notes that don't tell you anything about the song, just the same boilerplate bio about Al. While you play the CD, the bonus track by Weird Al is actually a concert performance of It's Still Billy Joel to me. So since two different songs got the same treatment, I'm not so sure that it was Dr. Demento trying to avoid the attention of lawyers, especially because he has a history of being extremely cautious with legal issues. For example, there was a song by, I think it was Tony Goldmark. Tony Goldmark submitted a song called It's a Disney World After All. In which there was a line, they make minimum wage, but they look good in beige. And Dr. Demento sent it back to him and says, I'm not going to play this until you either change that line or find out for sure that they do make minimum wage. He said, I don't want to get into any legal issues with that. And also, remember the wardrobe malfunction at the Super Bowl with Justin Timberlake and Janet Jackson? Well, after that issue, Dr. Demento was also being very cautious and he started over-censoring material that he played on his show just to be careful, just so he wouldn't get any legal trouble. So yeah, he started bleeping out words like fart. But anyway, sorry about uh, going off on that little tangent, but I just wanted to clear the air. Yes, there's a rare Weird Al Yankovic track that's about to come out, and it's about Pac-Man, and I personally think it's a great track. However, no, it is not the first time it's ever been released. So there. Ladies and gentlemen, I now give you the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. Well, 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 well. Yeah, this is the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. Everybody, thank you for letting me get that off my chest. I just wanted to... Well, it's not like you let me. It's more like, hey, I have a microphone here. I have some recording software. I can do whatever the heck I want. You can't control it. (laughs) Anyway, uh, thank you for listening. I really do appreciate that. And um, hey, what else can I say? So um, what have I been up to lately? Well, lots of things, uh, specifically gaming related, I guess I should talk about because, well, this is a gaming podcast. A week ago from the time this is being released, I spent uh, several hours at uh, Underground Retrocade, my favorite Pay One Price Arcade, and actually favorite arcade period, mainly because I've only been going to Pay One Price Arcades like Galloping Ghost, Pixel Blast. When I went to Jersey around Thanksgiving, I went to um, Silver Ball. Um, so uh, those are all Pay One Price places. <laughs> um, anyway, so I, I played uh, played a lot of games, including the arcade version of what I am going to be talking about um, over this episode. And uh, oh, while I was there, there was a, a small documentary crew there getting some footage. Um, so Scott Lambert, who owns and operates Underground Retrocade, said, hey, you should talk to those guys. So I did. And they said, oh, are you the gentleman who runs a podcast? I was like, gentlemen, hey, you've heard wrong, my friend. I am sorry, but hey, I'll be happy to help you out. What do you want me to do? And so they basically just had me on camera, asked me a couple of questions about why I think the arcade scene is getting a revival now, especially in the Chicago area and um, whatever else have you. And I was wearing my Pie Factory podcast t-shirt at the time. I may or may not have known that there was going to be a camera crew that day. Well, okay, okay, I'm not going to lie. I knew there was going to be a camera crew because literally, I think the day before I went, I'd I'd been planning going there for weeks because I hadn't been there in a while. But 
I think it was the day, maybe two days before I went, Scott had posted that there was going to be a documentary crew. So I was like, hmm, Pie Factory podcast t-shirt. So yeah, some publicity right there. Um, I would have worn my Atari 7800 homebrew podcast t-shirt, except uh, uh, I don't have one. So uh, yeah. (laughs) Anyway, um, so I, I I had a nice time, got some personal bests. I play a lot of pinball because I just realized I really do like pinball. I don't know if I love pinball, but I like it, so I decided, you know what, I need to play more pinball. Underground Retrocade has a small selection of pinball machines, but it's surprising like how varied it is. Like They have the Ghostbusters machine, which is just came out last year. Heard me mention that in a previous episode, actually. And uh, he's got one or two of the old electromechanical things, too, over there, too. Um, let's see, I played uh, Super Mario Brothers pinball. Um, let's see, what else? Blackout, which is an oldie. Uh, oh man, what else did I play? I don't, I don't remember the boards that I played. I did not play Bugs Bunny's Birthday Bash though. I've played that several times before. It was a fun one. And so far, three times I've joined the Fifty Million Club, meaning that I got the Fifty Million bonus on the third ball, <laughs> but not this time. Other gaming stuff that I've done. Well, yet even more about the Mateos cartridge. I think I mentioned in the last episode that I ordered a Pokey chip to put on the um, Mateos cart. Well, I did. I ordered the Pokey chip. I received the Pokey chip and I attached it to the Mateos card and I loaded up a couple of Pokey ROMs, specifically the Pokey version of Pac-Man collection and the Froggy homebrew from uh, Schmutzpuppe. And seriously, man, oh my goodness, I can't wait for Froggy to come out on a real cartridge. That is going to be so, even without the Pokey Chip, actually, but with the Pokey Chip, close your eyes, you will swear it is the arcade version. I am not even kidding about that. He just completely nailed, nailed the sound on that. Pac-Man Collection, however, I'm going to be honest, Pac-Man Collection with the Pokey, I it didn't it doesn't necessarily improve the sound. I personally don't think it doesn't make it sound any closer to the arcade versions of uh, the games that are on there. If anything, I think it's just different sounds. I mean, there's definitely a difference. I think the sounds are just different. It's, it just depends on what you prefer. But you know what? I think what I should do is post a link to the eBay listing for those pokey chips because I was really happy with the transaction. If you live in England, I believe it'll you're at an advantage because, well, the auction is based in England, so you'll get it really quickly. I think mine took a little over a week, but I was so happy that I actually ordered two more, mainly because there are some Atari 7800 homebrews that are coming out that use pokey sound and albert said if you want me to, if you want the pokey versions you're gonna have to send me either pokey chips or ball blazer cartridges and keeping in mind bobby adad's plea to not sacrifice ball blazer cartridges i ordered a couple of those pokey chips so um yeah thank you for that bobby yeah, and speaking of Mateos cart and pokey chips one thing if you have a Mateos cart and you're going to try out some pokey stuff you have to rename the file. It probably ends with K, like .32K or whatever. You have to change that K to a P. So rename it like .32P. If you don't do that, it's not going to use the pokey. It's just going to use the 7800 built-in TIA sound. So don't forget to do that. Um, I think that's all I had to talk about in terms of what I've been doing in the gaming world lately, of course, aside from my Pie Factory podcast duties of recording that and playing the games for that. See, that's a nice thing about uh, 
having my own podcast, you know, I can just plug away my other stuff as much as I freaking want. And there's nothing you can do about it <laughs> anyway. So that's what I had to say about that. And Hey, you know what? I should probably address some general feedback. And, uh, for this episode, I will spare you the general feedback pun. In fact, I will probably never use it again, but S Ramirez 2008 says, um, I wanted to mention that the upcoming release of time salvo will support Atari Vox speech. I mentioned this because you were wondering what other 7,800 games might include Atari Vox speech. The game is excellent. Very much like an updated crossfire with elements of Robotron, that is, Hulk and Twin Stick compatibility, I'm eagerly awaiting the release of this game. And thanks for chiming in about that, S. Ramirez 2008, and I too am eagerly waiting the release of that game. It really does look pretty cool, and uh, I will definitely have more information on that as it becomes available. And I'm going to uh, do something that I haven't done yet, and that is basically address some anonymous feedback. I heard from a couple of listeners, I know exactly who they were, but I'm keeping them anonymous at their request. Basically, both of them said pretty much the same thing. They both say they listen to this podcast, they enjoy the podcast. Uh, what do they have in common, though? That both of them don't own any homebrews for various reasons. One of them says, you know, I just don't really have the money to afford homebrews. I have higher priorities. The other one says, I don't actually own an Atari 7800. I use an emulator. So basically, whenever they play homebrews, it's some form of downloadable ROM. These people have said, you know what, I feel, I feel kind of guilty about it. And I really don't know if I should really comment. And, you know, I don't know if I'll get a hard time about that. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. If you're using downloadable ROMs, chances are they were posted by the actual programmer of the games. And chances are they were posted for a reason. And chances are they are still available for a reason. <laughs> I mean, the way I see it, and if anybody can correct me if I'm wrong about this, especially if you are a homebrew developer and you're hearing this, my feeling is that if the developer doesn't want you to download the ROM and would rather have you buy the actual cartridge, then the ROM file would not be posted. Or if it was previously posted, it would be taken down. So, um, yeah, I really do want people to support these hardworking folks as best they can. But of course, if you have no other choice and you really want to try these games, especially if you want to help out and say, Hey, you know what? I found a bug. Well, you know what? Then so be it. How many of us have gone to a library to get a book or a DVD or CD and then just brought it back instead of saying, just buying the book, CD or DVD it happens all the time. I do it. My wife does it. And, um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, yeah, if you can swing it, please absolutely financially support these folks. And of course there are certain situations that I can kind of understand. Like if the game is simply no longer available at all, like for example, and I hope this is just uh, a temporary thing. Santa Simon problem. There is no Santa Simon cartridge available. It was only available for a very short time about 10 years ago for a holiday release. So it's kind of hard to uh, talk about something you can't get your hands on. So if I find a ROM, then guess what? I'm going to use that as the basis for the show. I have a feeling that a lot of the homebrews that say Ferg talks about on his podcast, 
He doesn't necessarily own either, but you know what? Most of those ROMs are very freely downloadable. But I'm going to say one more time, if you can, please support these folks financially. Oh, and speaking of Ferg, I have to talk about something because uh, it seems to me that every time I do this podcast, I have been plugging my other podcast, Pie Factory Podcast. It now occurs to me that out of fairness, I should also plug other people's podcasts. And I've mentioned Ferg a couple of times, both already on this episode and on prior episodes, he is the host of the Atari 2600 Game by Game podcast. I have a feeling if you are listening to my podcast right now, you are also a regular listener of Ferg's podcast. Well, he recently posted a remastered version of episode two of his podcast from four years ago, covering the combat game. Well, even though it's just basically just a, a remastered version of that episode where he fixes some sound issues he had, I strongly urge you, don't just ignore it like, oh yeah, I've heard that one, I don't need to hear it again. No, seriously, listen to it again, because it's really fun listening to how people have changed and evolved over the years. So definitely listen to it. Listen to how much Ferg's inflection has changed and pay very, very close attention to what he has to say because a lot of it is quite important to our gaming community. And just pay close attention to what he says and how things actually turned out four years later. You'll certainly feel that, yeah, you'll be glad that you listened to that podcast. So, yeah, please listen to Ferg's Atari 2600 Game by Game podcast. I believe the URL for that is 2600gamebygamepodcast.libsyn.com. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So, um, having said all that, you know what? I have a podcast to do, so why don't we turn things over to the topic of episode six, Junior Pac-Man. Different sources don't really agree on when Bally Midway actually released Junior Pac-Man. Some say it was January 1st, 1983, while others say it was October. Um, my own memories and observations make me want to believe that the January date is actually more accurate. But regardless of uh, when Junior Pac-Man came out, it was programmed by GCC, General Computer Corporation of Burlington, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. GCC was formed in 1981 by Kevin Curran, Doug McRae, and John Tilko. They obviously hit the ground running because in 1981, they released Super Missile Attack, which was a hacked version of Missile Command to make it more challenging, and Crazy Otto, which is the game that evolved into Ms. Pac-Man. We're going to go into greater detail on that in a later episode. Many of you Atari fans are probably already familiar with GCC because after some legal disputes, Atari actually hired GCC to design video games. And um, perhaps GCC's most popular arcade game that they did for Atari was Food Fight. And, of course, for the Atari 7800 as well. And speaking of Atari 7800, GCC designed the chipset layout for that, as many of you know and did many other Atari 7800 games, as well as some of the later titles for the Atari 2600, and I believe they also did some games for the 5200 as well. In 1984, GCC switched its focus to computer peripherals, and pretty much stayed that way, because nowadays they're a laser printer manufacturer. I have one right here. Actually, that's a lie. No, I don't. But as for Junior Pac-Man itself, I got a few bits of trivia here. 
before we get into the actual details, that is. And as was standard for arcade games, Junior Pac-Man was released in both a standard upright cabinet model and in a cocktail table version. Some of the upright models were actually repurposed mappy cabinets complete with the oversized marquee sign. Other upright models were repurposed Super Pac-Man cabinets and actually were conversion kits. There are some Junior Pac-Mans out and about that actually still have the Super Pac-Man side art and control panel still intact. As with Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man, there are some existing Junior Pac-Man arcade games with a speed-up chip that will make your character move at about double speed while everything else just keeps going at the regular speed. The character Junior Pac-Man is implied to be the offspring of Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man. In fact, in Ms. Pac-Man, the game, in the third cutscene, the third cutscene is called Junior, and during that little scene, a stork delivers a baby to Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man, which of course would mean that Junior Pac-Man is actually a spin-off of Ms. Pac-Man, especially because the startup music in Junior Pac-Man is very similar to the music that plays during Ms. Pac-Man's Junior interstitial thingy. Whether Junior is actually Baby Pac-Man a bit older, well, I don't know. All right, now, what I'm going to do is something kind of different. I haven't done this yet in this podcast, and that is go through an entire segment unscripted. I have no script in front of me, no nothing. This is going completely by the top of my head. Uh, Usually the only part of my podcast that's unscripted is just my little preamble When I say, hey, here's what I've been up to, blah, blah, blah. You know, we got a great show. Technotronic is here. But I got to talk about the gameplay of Junior Pac-Man. It's basically Pac-Man. If you don't know how to play Pac-Man, I welcome you to planet Earth. We're mostly harmless here. So go read up on how to play Pac-Man or find someone who's at least 40 years old. They'll be able to actually find anybody who can talk. They'll probably tell you how you can play it. Most of you listening probably already know the deal with Junior Pac-Man. It plays the exact same, really, as Ms. Pac-Man. And, of course, Ms. Pac-Man plays exactly like Pac-Man, except that instead of the bonus prize just hanging out under the monster's pen in the middle, the bonus prize dances around the maze. And that's just how Junior Pac-Man works. However, there are a couple of differences. First of all, there are no escape tunnels in Junior Pac-Man. It's just the maze, so you can't do any warps from the left to the right or the right to the left. Second of all, the maze in Junior Pac-Man is much bigger, so big that it doesn't even fit on the screen. It's about two, two and a half times as wide as the mazes in Pac-Man, Ms. Pac-Man, and Super Pac-Man. So the screen actually has to scroll back and forth as you cross over into different parts of it. Well, okay, technically left and right, it's not really called scrolling. It's called panning. It's something I learned when I took a TV production class in college. Uh, Up and down is scrolling. Left and right is panning, but, or crawling actually. Um, Okay. I think if you move completely parallel left and right, it's considered crawling. But if you actually just rotate the camera left and right, it's considered panning. So anyway, we'll just say scrolling. We we all know what that means, so it's okay. So anyway, sorry about that little tangent. But 
that's what happens. That's perhaps the most popular feature of Junior Pac-Man, and that presents a bigger challenge. And there are seven different mazes, each with uh, different traps, different pitfalls, different hiding spaces, if you will, different difficulties. And the first five mazes have six energizers. The last two mazes only have four energizers. The ones with six energizers have two extra energizers, kind of sort of in the middle, but not really. And the mazes with only four energizers, the four energizers are in the four corners. When the bonus prize appears, which the first time it appears in the maze, it's after you eat a combination of a hundred dots and or energize. Well, not or energizers. You only get six energizers, but once the dot count including dots and energizers reaches a hundred. The first bonus prize comes out from the middle of the screen. And, um, I, you know, I've been playing this game for years and I still haven't figured out when the rest of them come out. I think it's every hundred dots, but Hey, and when the bonus prize comes out, if it crosses over any dots, it inflates the dots. The dots get a little bit bigger. Now, common lore about the Pac-Man games is that when you eat a dot, you slow down a little bit. And that is true with Junior Pac-Man as well. However, when Junior Pac-Man eats one of those bigger dots, he's going to slow down even more. So that throws a bigger challenge into the game too. So not only do you have the huge maze, but you also slow down. Oh, and the bonus prize, if it crosses over one of the four outer Energizer pills, it will destroy the Energizer. <laughs> And the prize will also be destroyed. So you lose out on an energizer, which means that's 50 points you don't get right there. You lose out on a chance to eat the monsters, so there are more points there. And you lose a chance to eat the bonus prize. And you know, all these years, I've been wondering what would happen if all you have left on screen are the inflated dots, the 50-point dots, and you lose a life. And what usually happens is when you lose a life, the inflated dots disappear. So does that mean that if you lose a life when all you have are inflated dots, does that mean they all disappear and by losing a life you've essentially cleared the level? Well, actually, no. I only found out when researching for this episode that if all that's left in the maze are the inflated dots, you don't have any other regular dots or energizers, the inflated dots actually revert to their original size. There are different bonus prizes in this game. In the first maze, you get, well, what most people call a bike, but I think it's really a tricycle. It's really a trike. It's, I think it's got three wheels. The second maze, the bonus prize is a kite. The third maze, the bonus prize is a snare drum. And the fourth maze, the bonus prize is a balloon. In the fifth maze, the bonus prize, as most people say, is a train, but it's really just the locomotive car. In the sixth maze, the bonus prize is a cat. So that is that telling us that Junior Pac-Man is actually Alf? And anyway, in the seventh maze, the bonus prize is a mug of root beer. And unlike Ms. Pac-Man, after you clear that last maze, the bonus prizes aren't randomized. Once you get the root beer, you will get root beer for the rest of the game. And to me, that is really, really cool because it's a good way to rack up points really quickly. Also different about Junior Pac-Man, in Pac-Man, the monster's names are Inky, Blinky, Pinky, and Clyde. In Ms. Pac-Man, the monster's names are Inky, Blinky, Pinky, and Sue. And in Junior Pac-Man, the monster's names are Inky, Blinky, Pinky, and Tim. Tim being the slow orange monster. And there's also one other monster who is only seen during the three cutscenes. 
Just like with Pac-Man, Ms. Pac-Man, and Super Pac-Man, every time you clear a certain number of screens, you get a little interstitial animation. And the three animations involve Junior Pac-Man meeting a little monster named Yum Yum. And when they meet, there's a little heart on the screen. So either that indicates that Yum Yum is a girl, or it might be a friendship heart, or they might be gay. I don't know. They, I don't think there's any official documentation on that. And Yum Yum is the offspring of Blinky. So, of course, Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man and Blinky don't really approve of that little relationship. So, of course, the three cartoons involve that little kind of... I, I get. You know, I've never read or seen Romeo and Juliet, but I'm going to guess it's more, it's kind of a Romeo and Juliet thing, except uh, it, nobody dies. <laughs> Spoiler alert. And by the way, speak, I mentioned that there's a balloon as the bonus prize. Well, that's kind of a tie in to one of the cutscenes, because in one of the cutscenes, Junior Pac Man presents Yum Yum with a balloon. So there's that little tie in right there. And some sources I've read said that every bonus prize is a tie-in to the little animations. And no, that is not true at all. Not true. And because Junior Pac-Man is basically a hacked version of Pac-Man, there is a kill screen. And I believe it's 146 levels into the game. I've never gotten that far myself. But um, what happens on the kill screen is you get a blank maze. It's just blackness and it's just you and the monsters and nothing else. And basically there's no way out and you die. And that's why it's called a kill screen. And I believe those are all the main differences between Pac-Man or Ms. Pac-Man and Junior Pac-Man. It would help to talk about scoring in Junior Pac-Man. And it's very similar to how Pac-Man is scored. If you eat a dot, you get 10 points, eat an energizer, you get 50 points. When you're under the influence of an Energizer, you can eat the monsters for 200 points for one, 400 points for two, 800 points for three, and 1,600 points for four. The points you get for the bonus items correspond to the points you get for the Ms. Pac-Man bonus equivalents. The bike or trike, whatever you want to call it, that's 100 points. The kite is 200 points. The drum is 500 points. The balloon is 700 points. The train or locomotive, whatever you want to call it, is a thousand points. The cat is two thousand points, and the root beer is five thousand points. If you eat a dot that one of the bonus prizes inflated, you get fifty points. Now there is the temptation to let the bonus prize just kind of meander around the maze and go over as many dots as possible, just so you can inflate your score. But my recommendation is don't do it. It's just too risky. Because even if you can catch up with the bonus prize without getting eaten by a monster, you know what's going to happen is it could cross over one of your energizers and destroy it. It's just not worth the risk, especially if you're playing the standard speed version of Junior Pac-Man. In case you didn't know, I'm a big Pac-Man fan, and I have been since I was first exposed to it back in 1981. I'm also a big Beatles fan, and it occurs to me that the Pac-Man craze has a lot of parallels to Beatlemania. Both Pac-Man and the Beatles saw marketing up the wazoo. There were Pac-Man video games, books, clothes, handheld LCD games, watches, pinball machines, clocks, trading cards, board games, songs, and even sound-alike contests. 
There were Beatles records, books, clothes, wigs, board games, pinball machines, clock, trading cards, sound alike content. You get my drift. And if you could just bear with me for a few minutes, I want to go into a bit of history of the Beatles and the albums that they released in the United Kingdom versus what Capitol Records released by the Beatles in the United States. Because believe me, there actually is kind of a, a, a parallel with that as well that can kind of explain how Junior Pac-Man came to be, as well as other Pac-Man sequels. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Beatles recorded for EMI in London, specifically EMI's Parlophone label. And uh, Parlophone released the Beatles records on singles, EPs, full uh, long play albums. Uh, by the way, EPs being extended play seven inch records that had two songs per side. That was for people who wanted more than just two songs a single offered, but didn't have enough money to buy the full album. But anyway, the Beatles did have some say in how the albums were arranged and mixed and all that good stuff. So in England, where Parlophone was based, it was standard for albums to contain 14 songs. And it was typical for the Beatles to not release singles from their albums, with a few exceptions. Their feeling was, well, you know what? They bought the single and if they're going to buy the album, they're going to be ripped off if they have to have an album that has the same songs that were out as singles. We don't want to do that to our fans. So usually single releases wouldn't actually appear on subsequent albums. Now let's go west to the United States. In late 1963, December-ish, Capitol Records agreed to release the Beatles music here in the States. First of all, remember how I said that in the UK, it's standard to have 14 songs on an album? Well, in the United States, the standard is 12 songs per album. And because Beatlemania was really taking off in this country, Capitol was trying to come up with as many ways as they could to make as much money as possible from Beatlemania. So Capitol would release Beatles albums that would also contain songs that were released as singles. So that way they could hype the album. Hey, this album contains their latest single. And since Capitol would end up putting single songs on the album, well, let's see, that would boost the total number of songs on the album to 16. So of course they have to take two of them off to bring it back down to 14. And of course, because it's standard in this country to have only 12 songs per album, that means two more songs would be kiboshed. Sometimes actually three more. So there are some American Beatles albums out there with only 11 songs. But Capitol's thinking, okay, what do we do with these songs that we left off? I know what we can do. As we get more Beatles albums and we have to keep cutting songs off of them, let's make new Beatles albums after the leftover songs. And hey, that means more money for us, more sales. Yay. So that's exactly what happened. I mean, it's much more complicated than that as to how the Capitol Records Beatles albums existed, but that's basically a highly simplified explanation. And before Capitol Records would release their Beatles albums, it was felt that, well, to make the music sound more acceptable to American audiences, some of the songs are going to have to be remixed. They already had the master tapes, so they couldn't really do much with the mixes, so all they did was add some extra reverb. And just to give you an idea of what they did, here is the Beatles song, She's a Woman, as it appears in England and on most of their regular releases today. My love don't give me presents. 
Now here's that same song as it appeared on the Capitol Records album, Beatles 65. So you see what they did there. And to give you an idea of how different things were on the different sides of the Atlantic, I'm going to rattle off a list of all the Beatles albums on their home label, Parlophone, up through 1967. Please please me, with the Beatles, A Hard Day's Night, Beatles for Sale, Help, Rubber Soul, Revolver, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Now here are the Beatles albums as released in America by Capitol Records, also through 1967. Meet the Beatles, the Beatles' second album, Something New, The Beatles' Story, Beatles 65, The Early Beatles, Beatles 6, Help, Rubber Soul, Yesterday and Today, Revolver, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, Magical Mystery Tour. So look at that, that's eight albums from Parlophone versus 15 albums from Capitol. And one of those albums from Capitol was completely fabricated from start to finish, not even really authorized by the folks over in England. Well, you know what? The Pac-Man arcade franchise kind of had a similar thing going. Now, I'm going to rattle off a list of officially sanctioned Namco Pac-Man games straight from the folks in Japan as they were released through 1986. Pac-Man, or as they called it over there, Puck-Man, Super Pac-Man, Pac-and-Pal, Pac-Land, and Pac-Mania. Now let's look at what Midway, who is basically Pac-Man's version of Capitol Records, let's look at what Midway released in the United States again through 1986. Pac-Man, Ms. Pac-Man, Super Pac-Man, exciting new Pac-Man Plus, Mr. and Mrs. Pac-Man Pinball Machine, Baby Pac-Man, Junior Pac-Man, Pac-Man and Chomp Chomp, Professor Pac-Man, and Pac-Land. Wow, that list right there. Five official Pac-Man games from Namco, but somehow here in America, Midway gives us nine video games, what of course was a video game pinball hybrid, and one pinball machine. Now, one can argue that Ms. Pac-Man wasn't necessarily Namco unauthorized, because even though it was created by Midway, Namco did offer some input into the creation of that game, and I'll get into that in much more detail when I talk about Pac-Man collection much later in the future. But um, that's kind of why it's the one Midway Pac-Man game that does appear on various Namco-sanctioned Pac-Man collections you get on home consoles and Android and iOS devices and things like that. Now, Ms. Pac-Man, Pac-Man Plus, and Junior Pac-Man all were modified versions of the original Pac-Man, much as how many Beatles albums were actually modified versions of their original counterparts. Like Rubber Soul and Revolver, uh, slightly different lineups, Help, different lineup, Please Please Me in the UK was released in the US as the early Beatles with a few songs missing, etc. So you get the point there. Pac-Man and Chomp Chomp was a slightly altered version of Pac-N-Pal, changing the Miru character to the dog named Chomp Chomp from the Saturday morning cartoon show in an attempt to make it relatable to American audiences, much as how Capitol Records remixed some of the Beatles music in an attempt to make it more acceptable to American audiences. Mr. and Mrs. Pac-Man, Baby Pac-Man, and Professor Pac-Man were completely fabricated from start to finish much as the Beatles story was by Capitol Records. 
And yes, the game Pac-Mania was released in both Japan and the United States, but you didn't hear it mentioned when I read off the list of Pac-Man games released in the United States, and that's because Midway did not release Pac-Mania here. Namco was getting tired of Midway creating all those unauthorized Pac-Man games. Now, the Beatles were getting sick of Capital, basically the term they usually use is butchering their albums and making new albums out of leftover tracks. So the Beatles put their foot down and insisted that Capitol no longer alter their albums. So starting in 1968, their albums were more or less the same on both sides of the Atlantic. But what could Namco do? Well, they could actually cut ties with Midway, which is why when Pac-Mania came out in 1986, Atari was the one who released it over here in the States. Now, if you were to buy a Beatles CD today or go online and download it from iTunes or Amazon or whatever else have you, chances are it's going to be in the original British configuration from Parlophone Records. However, many first-generation American Beatles fans prefer to listen to the Beatles as they originally heard that music, which would have been in the Capitol configurations and Capitol mixes. The United States was by far the Beatles' biggest market back during the Beatles' heyday, so in order to please the American fans, the Beatles agreed to have the American albums released on CD in a couple of, on a couple of occasions. Uh, 2004, for one, you, there were a few of their albums, a few of their American albums were put out on CD, and I think it was 2013 when all of their American Capital configured albums came out on CD, although they weren't exactly the same as Capital originally put them out, but still. Now, as a parallel to that, many American Pac-Man fans do like maybe even love many of the Midway creations, especially Ms. Pac-Man and Junior Pac-Man. So there's definitely demand for those games, and that's why Junior Pac-Man exists on several video game consoles and computers, including homebrew versions. Let's talk about the history of the Atari 7800 version of Junior Pac-Man. Well, the first hint that there was an Atari 7800 conversion came about on March 6, 2009. Yeah, nearly eight years prior to the day this episode was released. Somebody using the handle Frau Blucha started a thread on Atari Age titled, Hi, question about the Atari Junior Pac-Man discovered. The original post read, and I quote, Hello, new here. We were cleaning out the attic last weekend, and my dad pulled out a box that had a 7800 and a few games. Some of them seem to have no plastic covers on them. I did a Google search for 7800, and it led me here. There were six games. Mrs. Pac-Man, I'm sure he meant Ms. Pac-Man, Joust, Robotron, Galaga, and two that just look like green boards. Not even sure if they really go with this unit. It looks like there's a plug for it, but I can't find any controllers. Does anyone know how to connect them to the video input on the LCD TV I have? I don't get anything but a blue screen when I try it. Are any of these worth anything? Does anyone know where to get controllers for this thing? Thanks, Dylan. Of course, some users followed up with some helpful information as to how to get the 7800 working on a modern TV and just testing the games in general. Frau Blucher responded with a thanks and added, I'm very curious about these two boards I found with the other games. At first I thought they were just extra parts of something, but I looked and the edge looks just like one of the edges of the other games. I guess it's a bare board without the case? 
And it has a little white sticker that says JR87 on top of one of the chips, chips in quotation marks. After there were some more responses to answer some other questions that Frau Bluka posted, Frau Bluka shared a couple of pictures of the two game boards that weren't in cartridges. One of them was indeed labeled JR87 or Junior 87. On March 13th, Wiki Columbus became the first Atari Age user to dare ask the question as to whether it could be Junior Pac-Man. Another user by the name of Alan responded that it was actually more likely to be Donkey Kong Jr., which of course was a pretty common game on the Atari 7800. Ken Fused, aka Atari homebrewer Ken Siders, concurred that it would more likely be Donkey Kong Jr. rather than Junior Pac-Man, because the 5200 version of Junior Pac-Man was never released, it was just left in prototype state, so why would someone even have a 7800 version? Well, there were a few more follow-up posts, a few more questions. On March 16th, Frau, Bluch, Frau Bluche said, man, German names are hard to pronounce, but uh, Frau Bluche said that the 7800 and the games both belong to his dad. And that same day, he posted another message and this time said, okay, did a little searching and found Junior Pac-Man. It looks like a scrolling maze is only in this game. The one I have here does this as well, and they look very similar. I called my dad at work, and he said he doesn't really remember where he got it, but he used to know someone who worked for a computer company back then. And then another user, his name was uh, Rick02, responded that it was probably the Atari 2600 Junior Pac-Man, because of course the 7800 can play 2600 games. Wiki Columbus said, well, if it is a long-lost discovered 7800 prototype, the ROM should be ripped and preserved before bit rot happens. And uh, I, I'm not going to go into an ex explanation about bit rot. Um, if you want to look it up on Wikipedia, go right ahead. But anyway, there was another user who was using the handle Underball, and on that same day, he, we he wondered whether Frau Blucha was actually perhaps Bob DiCrescenzo or Ken Siders playing an April Fool's Day joke, as there were allegedly a couple of secret 7800 homebrews in the works. Well, Bob himself chimed in and claimed that he had no knowledge of Frau Bluka and even asked Frau Bluka to please post screen pictures of Junior Pac-Man in action. On March 18th, Frau Bluka I'm not, you know, I'm not going to do the do the German anymore. So man, I'm getting spit all over the wind filter in this thing. So Frau Bluka obliged and provided four unfortunately blurry pictures. There were two of the intro screen, two of some of the gameplay. And he said he asked his dad where he got it, but said that his dad didn't remember and more than likely his dad probably just didn't want to be bothered about it anymore. Well, you can imagine the excitement that uh, those pictures stirred up. I mean, Underball was suspecting that Frau Bluka was playing a fast one on Atari age and found it suspicious that someone would claim it was his dad's Atari, yet not be able to get much information about it. And even still... He had a username and an avatar to go with it that was based on a popular mid-70s movie. But those suspicions still weren't enough to uh, basically stifle Underball's excitement. Another user named Lord Helmet concurred and said that even if it's a prank and it's actually a homebrew and not a long-lost prototype, it's still exciting. Now, I never, I even asked him once about this, how to pronounce his name, and I never heard back, but uh, Kielbaka, Kyle Baca, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, I'm just going to say Kielbaka, 
mainly because I live in Chicago, which has a very strong Polish population, and we're all about kielbasa over here. Um, I don't think I'm Polish, but I might be for all I know. But anyway, uh, kielbasa was um, one of the first to come right out and say, you know what, it's probably Bob teasing with his latest homebrew. Frob Luca then explained his handle and the avatar he was using. He said, well, my dad and I would just watched Young Frankenstein recently, and we really enjoyed it. And then he asked, well, how do I dump the ROM? Albert chimed in and said, I can do it for you, and he sent him a private message. On March 24th, Frob Luca said that he packaged up the Junior Pac-Man board and was getting ready to ship it over to Albert. He then asked about possible monetary value of the game, thinking that he might be able to make a few bucks from selling this rare item he had on his hands. A few days later, Albert posted that he had received the game, and he posted this time clear pictures of his Atari 7800 with the bare board in the cartridge slot and playing the game with his Sony Trinitron TV. He said that he didn't know yet how finished the game was, but it had a complete animated intro screen with seemingly complete graphics and sound. Now, amid all the user responses expressing their excitement, there was one user, SR Gilbert, who was jokingly, or perhaps not jokingly for all we know, he accused Albert of being in on this so-called conspiracy. And uh, the aforementioned Alan pointed out how fishy it was that it was so close to April 1st. And he said, and I quote, until there is some video or a dump, I'm not convinced this is real. The whole story seems fishy to me. So Albert chimed in and promised to post a video of the game in action as soon as he could. And a few hours later, he did fulfill that promise. Then he said he had already dumped the ROM and sent the board back to Frau Bluka and was about to try running the dumped ROM in an emulator. Then there was much discussion and debate. Is this a real prototype? Is it an April Fool's Day joke? Is it a cruel hoax and the game doesn't actually exist in any form? Will the ROM ever be shared? Well, Albert said he will share the ROM only if Frob Luca lets him. Even Bob chimed in, saying, You know what? I don't care if it's real. I don't care if it's fake. I just want to know how the developer managed to program the scrolling. And uh, Bob said that he could never figure that out. Meanwhile, Underball pointed out a curiosity. The copyright date in the video and the pictures posted said 1984 which meant that the prototype would have been almost ready in time for the initial launch of the Atari 7800 in October of 1984. But it definitely would have been ready when the wide release happened in 1987. But he found it strange because if that were the case, then why was the Atari 2600 version released in 1986? Well, actually he said 1987, but in actuality, the 2600 version of Junior Pac-Man came out in 86. In other words, why would a version for an older system come out later than a version for a brand new system would have? A user with the handle Supergun had an answer for that. Junior Pac-Man was programmed for all the Atari systems, meaning the three game consoles and the 8-bit computers, in 1984, with the release intended for that same year. Atari went so far as to assign part number CX7813 to Junior Pac-Man, and that part number would have indicated it was supposed to have been a launch title. And by the way, I did a little bit of research and found several corroborating sources saying that, yes, Junior Pac-Man was assigned part number CX7813. So moving on to April Fool's Day, that morning, Frau Bluka posted the ripped ROM and said he couldn't get it working in an emulator and implied that he hoped somebody else might be able to figure it out. 
So a couple of users, uh, Mirage and Ian Primus, they both said they could get the ROM running with no problem. And at Albert's request, Mirage posted some screen grabs from the Windows Pro System emulator. He later said that the game would crash when he finished the first level. Albert said, well, you know what? On the actual board, I was actually able to play past the first level. And indeed, the video he posted showing him getting to the second level before losing his last life. But many users were finding that upon clearing that first level, the screen would freeze and the maze would disappear, leaving Junior Pac-Man and the monsters on the screen against a completely black background. You know how hard it is to say black background? I usually end up saying back black ground, but uh, didn't that time. <laughs> Albert feared that the ROM rip that he did might have gone wrong, but it turns out he hadn't actually yet shipped the game board back to Frau Bluka. He just packaged it up. So he said, you know what? Let me open it up. Try to rip it again. I'm not sure how this user pronounces his or her name, but I'm going to say, I want, I want a witch Gorachsin just came right out and said, and I quote, it's a hoax, followed by a laughing emoticon. Meanwhile, many users were trying to figure out how to get the ripped file to work properly in various emulators. One of those users, Dutchman2000, at 12.28 p.m. on April 1st, just a few hours after that ripped ROM was posted, said he used a hexadecimal editor on the ROM file and found the following in the code. RPD, copyright symbol, 2009. RPD, copyright 2009. Hmm. Guess who RPD is? Yep, Robert P. DiCrescenzo. So Bob saw that message and he was fuming about it. Not that somebody posted that. He was angry with himself because he realized he forgot to take that notation out of the code. He said he even went through the trouble of making the monsters shaped like how Atari shaped the monsters rather than how he usually shapes the monsters to be more arcade-like. He did that just so people wouldn't recognize his own design. Bob admitted that the version of the ROM that was crashing for people in emulation, that was posted intentionally just to throw people off. So he posted a working version of the ROM. He then hinted about something that would happen when you hit the pause button. So Bob signed one of his responses as Bob, and then in parentheses, Dylan, with a smiley emoticon. <laughs> See what he did there? Because Frau Luca's name was Dylan. Anyway. <laughs> Vectorman Zero said, All of you detectives could have figured this out much sooner had you taken a closer look at the pictures posted early on in post eight of this thread and then a winking emoticon. I did, but I didn't want to ruin the gag for everyone else. So why did Vectorman Zero say that? Well, it turns out that if you examine the images posted and you look at the EXIF data, uh, they all had Bob's name in them. <laughs> but uh, later on in that afternoon, well, probably evening, possibly even the next day where he's located in Germany, Mark Oberhäuser posted pictures of a box he had designed for the game cartridge. Then Bob posted a newer version of the ROM, and he said the April Fool's message was removed. Now, I have not tried that ROM myself, but I'm guessing that that reference he made to the pause button, I'm guessing the pause button triggered an April Fool's message. And he also included the beginning of the first cutscene. In fact, he said the only things missing from the game were complete cutscenes. 
And also in that post he made, there was a picture of the game cartridge complete with labels. On April 6th, in response to some questions, Bob said that he added the cutscenes, but they still didn't have the music. He tried to capture music from the arcade version and convert that music to a format that could play back on the 7800. He said the resulting music was close, but no cigar, his actual words. He said he also had to make a few sacrifices in the breaks, and as a result, they're not exactly the same as their arcade counterparts, but he eventually decided to look into using the cutscene music from the Atari 2600 version of Junior Pac-Man as a starting point and see if he could tweak it. Well, I, I don't know if I should use the phrase cutscene because it really wasn't a cutscene. Those of you who haven't played the 2600 Junior Pac-Man, they had actually tried to put the cutscenes in there, but, in, but they couldn't, so they just left the music in there. So basically, when you get a maze that has the music, it's just a pause until the music's over or you press the button to move on. But anyway, it turns out that all the music in the game was taken directly from the Atari 2600 version, which is actually pretty obvious just by listening to it. On April 11th, Bob posted the first release candidate with a few additions and a few bug fixes. For example, he fixed a problem in which the bonus prize of the kite, when it moved around the maze, it would actually inflate not only the dots that were on the row that the kite was on, but if the tail of the kite happened to be in the path of a dot below that row when it was bouncing around, that dot also would inflate, and that wasn't really supposed to happen, so he fixed that. Also, he took the intermission music from the Atari 2600, did his best he could to finish it, because, well, the 2600 music wasn't 100% the complete music from the arcade. He also said, there's now an Easter egg. Ho-ho. The next morning, there was another release candidate with some more minor fixes. Also, Bob pointed out that if you select the teddy bear level, you actually get the maze from Pac-Man Championship Edition. However, Bob specifically said that that is not the aforementioned Easter egg. He said the Championship Edition maze was kind of in response to people who suggested that the next game he make, considering how the scrolling maze would work nicely, would be Pac-Man Championship Edition. Unfortunately, Bob said that that was not going to be happening unless Namco specifically sanctioned him to do it because he was kind of growing weary of doing Pac-Man games, so he wanted to move on and do other types of games. On the plus side, though, Bob said that Junior Pac-Man cartridges were about to go into production as soon as he knew that there were no more bugs to fix. Well, Actually, in the programming world, you never know. You should always assume there are bugs, but basically when he felt that it was bug-free enough to release, I'll put it to you that way. April 15th, there was another release candidate posted with another one the next day, and Bob said that he had hoped that that one was going to be the final ROM. Unfortunately, though, he found a bug with the high scorecard functionality. April 17th saw a posting of yet another release candidate, this time with the high score cart functionality seemingly working. He said he saved the fix as a template so that he could incorporate it into future games without having to run into that problem again. That is, until he found that the game would crash sporadically when you enter your initials in the high score table. On April 19th, Bob posted another release candidate along with a newer updated version of Ms. Pac-Man, making it slightly more arcade accurate. Bob discovered yet another bug with the high scorecard handling. 
that is to say on certain revisions of the Atari 7800, there was a bug that made the game think there was a high score cartridge attached when there actually wasn't one. On April 24th, Bob started taking names for a limited 30 cartridge release of Junior Pac-Man. I made it to the list number 17. Woohoo! He would be charging $30 instead of his usual $25 because the cartridge necessitated extra RAM that his other games didn't. Within a day, the pre-order list expanded to 40 because Bob was being a little bit conservative with his estimate and found that he could actually make more cartridges. Cartridges were shipped out. I got mine. Woohoo! But a couple of weeks later, Bob said he had to immediately and permanently discontinue shipping any carts that hadn't already gone out because he found that the extra RAM in the cartridge caused some Atari 7800s to display the maze with parts of the outer wall glitching and actually affecting gameplay. However, he found out that if you hit the reset button, the glitching goes away. The glitch only actually happens the first game you start after you power the 7800 on. Um, I must be one of the lucky ones because I don't have that glitch on mine. <laughs> but um, after numerous follow-ups with different Atari Age users who offered their programming input, there was much testing, more posted ROM files, confirmation that the glitch was gone, so Bob resumed shipping Junior Pac-Man cartridges with the fix. Those who got the original batch that Bob shipped, including me, also received a numbered Junior Pac-Man trading card. At least with my cartridge, I didn't get a printed manual, but there is a PDF version available in the reserve list thread on, the, on Atari Age. I probably should link that in the show notes. On October 26, Albert announced that Junior Pac-Man, along with Super Pac-Man Space Invaders, both of which were more Bob DiCrescenzo homebrews, and Wasp had been released on cartridge through the Atari Age store, and it has since become one of the top-selling Atari 7800 games in the Atari Age store. Cartridges purchased from Atari Age have the option of PAL or NTSC, and they come with a printed instruction manual. And by the way, that manual tells us that the mazes are actually playgrounds and the bonus items are actually toys. The cartridge itself is highly custom. It does not look anything like an original run Atari 7800 cartridge. There's no silver label or anything. It is completely custom artwork based on the original Junior Pac-Man arcade marquee artwork. It's really, really nice. The box from Mark Oberhäuser has a kind of green and black background with the Junior Pac-Man artwork on it. It's really, really nice. I don't remember off the top of my head if Atari Age sells it or if you have to buy it separately from Mark. Whatever the case, if you have to buy it separately from Mark, I will put a link to it in the show notes. On the order form on the site, there's no option to ship to the United States. So if you live in the States, you actually have to contact him directly. I actually have several of his boxes. So it's absolutely, you absolutely can get the boxes if you're in the United States. You just can't do it through the order form. And going back to that instruction manual, for those of you who don't have the manual, such as me, by the way, as you probably are aware by now, you can select either one or two players, and you can select the level you want to start with. If you start with the teddy bear level, as I mentioned before, you'll get the Pac-Man Championship Edition maze, which is considered a fairly easy maze for youngsters to navigate. But what I didn't mention is that the monsters move a lot slower than if you start the game on another level. The bonus prize, or toy, 
is a teddy bear. Well, technically, it's just the head of a teddy bear. It's kind of creepy, if you ask me. <laughs> but uh, it's worth 50 points, and once that maze is clear, the game continues its usual levels. It goes through tricycle, kite, drum, etc. The difficulty switches will come into play, too. The player one difficulty switch controls the number of lives you have. Flip it to the left for five lives, flip it to the right for three lives. The player two difficulty switch controls junior Pac-Man speed, left for fast and right for regular. And please note that the difficulty switches will have no effect on the game until you actually start a new game. So if you flip the right difficulty switch in the middle of the game, don't expect Junior Pac-Man to suddenly change speeds right there in the middle of the game. You actually have to reset the game. But anywho, the game is currently available in the Atari Age store, and I will definitely be linking that in the show notes. You know, I don't think I really did this in any of the past episodes, but I would like to offer some playing strategies for Junior Pac-Man, especially because, uh, brag alert, uh, I... Hold the Twin Galaxies world record for Junior Pac-Man, both the arcade version and the Atari 7800 version, um, turbo mode. Although I have heard that somebody might be going after my arcade world record, so I'd kind of like to offer a few tips. Uh, first of all, and this is actually something that I learned off Atari Age, and this is true for any version of Junior Pac-Man. Don't worry about chasing the monsters when you eat an Energizer. Just worry about clearing the maze. And what a lot of people like to do is kind of clear paths around islands. They figure like working in blocks like that tends to work pretty well. Your mileage may vary. Um, I kind of go back and forth between doing that and not doing that myself. So remember earlier in the episode when I mentioned that the first bonus prize comes out after you eat 100 dots? Well, that's really only true in the arcade version. On the Atari 7800 homebrew version, the first bonus actually comes out when you eat 65 dots, which makes me wonder if some of the coding was actually borrowed from the Atari 7800 Ms. Pac-Man, because in Ms. Pac-Man and Pac-Man, the bonus prize actually comes out roughly around 70 dots, so 65 sounds about right. But anyway, if you plan carefully, you can make sure that Junior Pac-Man is near the monster's hideout when the bonus prize appears. And I think I failed to mention this earlier, but since you don't have escape tunnels for the prize to appear from in Junior Pac-Man, as they do in Ms. Pac-Man, they start at the same place where the monsters actually emerge. Also, as with Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man, when you eat an Energizer, the monsters of course turn blue, and when they're about to change back to their normal colors and therefore no longer vulnerable to you, they flash back and forth between blue and white. In the first five levels, the trike through the locomotive, the monsters will flash eight times before they revert to their original colors. So when they start to flash, count the number of flashes and stop chasing the monsters when you reach eight, or when you realize that before the eighth flash happens, you're still going to be nowhere near them. Now, to be honest, I don't have any evidence to back this up, but I strongly believe that the number one reason an average Pac-Man player on pretty much any of the variations of Pac-Man that is, the reason for an average Pac-Man player losing a life is basically chasing the monsters for too long. On the 6th and 7th mazes, they, well, technically they flash only four times. The monsters in the arcade version flash four times, but on the 7800, you might see the monsters stay blue for what would be two flashes, but then they flash twice, 
which is another reason I tend to believe that some of the code from the 7800 version of Ms. Pac-Man was incorporated into Junior Pac-Man. In the next several levels, the number of flashes alternates between 4 and 8. So rather than go to detail about that, I'm going to post a link to a matrix that I made that details which levels have 4 flashes, which levels have 8 flashes, and which levels don't have any flashes at all. A spoiler alert, that would be level 14, and then every level after the 15th. I put that on my Pac-Maniacs blog, which is located at Pac-Maniacs, with an X, that is, .wordpress.com, but I will put a direct link to that matrix in the show notes. The matrix I made up includes that information for both the standard version of Junior Pac-Man and the difficult version of Junior Pac-Man. And as far as I can tell, Bob is only using the standard variation in his Junior Pac-Man cartridge, not the difficult. There's also a strategy I use on the root beer maze that was actually taught to me by a guy named Fred Oaks, who has a pretty high score in the arcade turbo mode Junior Pac-Man. And to be honest, I have never been able to clear the root beer maze in regular speed mode. Even when I start the 7800 version with five lives on the root beer maze, I cannot clear that thing. I can only clear it in high speed mode. The problem is that maze has so many ways to get trapped. That seventh maze is such a freaking beast. You only get four energizers for one thing, and where they're located can be pretty freaking harmful. Each of the energizers is located within a box, within a box, in each corner of the maze, and it's all too easy to get trapped inside those corners. On both the left side and the right side of the maze, there is a small island between those two corners. And if you enter the gap where that island is and go around that island, the monsters are likely going to go into one of the corners above or below you and end up inside that box or the box within that box. So that'll give you a little bit of protection, a little bit of time. My advice is if you can get all four monsters into one corner, then do so. If you're still at a level in which an energizer allows you to eat a monster, go right for it, eat the energizer, and gobble up the monsters when they're trapped inside that corner, and then clear that corner of dots as soon as you can before the monsters regenerate. And if you can't do that, then just do whatever you can do. The strategy works, especially in turbo mode, but it takes a lot of patience. You have to practice some restraint. Hiding out in that island gap is also going to help you plan your next move. If you can get the monsters to the outermost edge of the maze, then get away from the island and make your way across to the other side of the screen and keep repeating that process until you can clear away all the dots. Okay, everybody, it is now feedback time. And since the previous episode, we didn't get to hear from the folks at Atari.io, I'm going to start with them for this episode. I actually posted a request for feedback a couple of days before the release of the previous episode because I knew I was going to be doing a lot of work for this episode, so I just wanted to get started as soon as possible. So Justin, who's the administrator on Atari.io, chimes in with, Junior Pac-Man for Atari 7800 is my favorite of the Pac-Man Plus releases for two reasons. One, it's a faithful and satisfying port. Two, growing up, I thought Junior Pac-Man was brilliant on the 2600 and was one of the games I played the most on the 2600. I always wished there had been a 7800 version and never understood why there wasn't. 
It felt like there was a gap in the 7800 library where Junior Pac-Man should have been, and this release fixes that. Colorful, great animation sequences, and everything that I had wanted in Junior Pac-Man on the 7800 came to life. There are lots of tremendous homebrews on the 7800, but for me, the ones that really shine are the titles that I had always wanted to see on the 7800 finally done right. Best wishes on your podcast. No, thank you, Justin. Thank you for that uh, kind word at the end and for all your other words uh, before that, too. And I do have to address both of those points. The first point being it's a faithful and satisfying port. Yeah, it it really is. Um, And some time ago, I think it was uh, last summer when I did a world record attempt on the uh, sped up version of the 7800 Junior Pac-Man. I streamed it live on Facebook. And uh, Scott Lambert, who's the proprietor of Underground Retrocade, uh, he watched it and he said, man, that's a really good port of Junior Pac-Man. And yeah, it absolutely is. And your second point, Junior Pac-Man being brilliant on the 2600, man, I did not even realize that that game had been out. And yeah, somehow I missed it in that um, the fun is back. Oh yes, sirree commercial because it was in that one. I, rem- I I saw it on YouTube. I was like, Oh my God, how did I miss that? I remember the commercial very well, but I don't remember. I didn't remember seeing the junior Pac-Man screenshot in there, but it was in 1987 when I was at KB toys at the mall and I saw they had junior Pac-Man and I was like, Oh my God, I want that for Christmas. And, um, I got that for Christmas that year. So I was so happy. I got that, and uh, my brother got me Crystal Castles for the 2600, and uh, I played them both on Christmas, and I absolutely loved both of them. And to this day, I feel that Junior Pac-Man on the 2600 is the best officially sanctioned arcade port. Uh, If you want to reach into the world of homebrews, I think Ladybug is the best arcade port. But yeah, Junior Pac-Man, they did it. They did a great job on the 2600. And you mentioned, by the way, Justin, you mentioned the animation sequences. Apparently on the 2600 version, they actually tried to put those in. And that's why there are musical breaks in there. That was kind of left over from their attempt to um, include those animations. At least that's from what I was told. But uh, that was the most they can do. So thank you, Justin. And here are the words of Trek MD. Ah, Junior Pac-Man. He may be junior, but there is nothing junior about him. With the massive mazes, high speed, and exploding bonus items, this is a Pac-Man game that will satisfy any fan of the Pac series of games. Of course, this particular port by Bob DeCrescenzo is nothing short of a gaming work of art. This port has graphics that are excellent and arcade accurate, The mazes scroll horizontally, and the action is just as frenetic. The sound effects are an excellent approximation to the arcades, which is a feat all on its own given the limits of the TIA chip in the 7800. If you want to cheat a bit, you can use the right difficulty switch to give Junior a speed edge that should make it easier to finish those huge mazes. In addition to all the mazes, the game features the intermission scene. I know the 2600 port does not have these, and I believe other Atari ports do not have these either, so this is a nice touch. This is yet another must-have for anyone with an Atari 7800. Wow, I cannot disagree with you at all on that, TrekMD. Thank you for your thoughts on there. And, uh, yeah, the, the right difficulty switch, it's not so much a cheat, but that is based on an actual variation of Junior Pac-Man that does exist in the wild. And I got to tell you that 
you are so right about making it easier to finish the mazes. Uh, a lot of people don't like the high speed mode. They don't find it as easy to control, but I got to be honest, I can, as much as I love the Pac-Man games, I absolutely suck at the ones that, that don't have the high speed variation going on. I can't, I can only get maybe 125,000 a regular Pac-Man. I don't think I've ever made it to the fourth maze and Ms. Pac-Man with a standard three lives, one extra life setting. With the high-speed setting in Ms. Pac-Man, I actually made it to 760,000 once in the arcade. In fact, the whole reason I first went to Underground Retrocade was I checked arcade.com, that's A-U-R-C-A-D-E, just to see what arcades and games were in the Chicago area, and I saw they had a Turbo Junior Pac-Man. I went there just to play the Turbo Junior Pac-Man. And that was like an hour drive for me. Um, it's not really terribly far away from me. It's just that uh, I have to take Interstate 90 and I live right by the lake on the north side of Chicago. And to get to 90, I have to finagle all over the Chicago grid system <laughs> to get to 90. And that's what really takes up the majority of the time. <laughs> but yeah, I can attest to you that, yes, it absolutely does give you a chance to see all the mazes. The first time I ever played Junior Pac-Man in turbo mode, and this was the arcade version, I actually did make it through all seven mazes. And in fact, I saw them repeat at one point. So I saw a lot of the mazes twice. So yeah, it really does give you a fighting chance of seeing all the mazes. And the same is true for the 7800 version. It's so faithful to the arcade version that it's a good way to practice either way with or without turbo mode. Thanks again, Trek MD. And moving on to Atari Fan 95. I remember reading somewhere that this homebrew was first announced on the Atari Age message boards, and the person that posted about it claimed it was a beta cartridge that he found in his attic so that he could release the homebrew as an April Fool's joke. He was even uploading footage of it and everything. <laughs> and uh, thank you for that, uh, for that reminder for everybody there, Atari Fan 95. And of course, by this time, you all know the story. Now let's see what the folks on the Atari Age forums are saying. Save2600 says, Best home version of Junior Pac-Man I've ever played. And unlike every other version I've played, this one is actually fun without being balls hard. Great graphics, animation, gameplay. It's got everything you'd expect out of another Pac-Man game from Pac-Man Plus. Being Bob DiCrescenzo, that is. Since getting this for the 7800, I won't even attempt to play the 2600 version anymore. And the C64 version? Forget about it. And there's a little laughy icon there. A version of Junior Pack is soon to be released for the Intellivision as well. I'm sure it will be great in its own special way, as the other Intellivision Pac-Man games are. But for me, the 7800 version will remain my go-to for when I want some side-scrolling pack action. Wow, you brought up kind of a sore point there for uh, for me, uh, Save2600. You mentioned the C64 version. I totally agree with you. Forget about it. I had a Commodore 64, and when I tried the uh, 64 version of Junior Pac-Man, I was so angry. I really was. Because instead of having a scrolling maze, they basically shrunk it to fit on the screen. Uh, I'll have to go back and check, but I think they even took out some parts of the maze to make it fit. And it's like, what's the freaking point? And for what I understand, the 
PC version was like that, the DOS version. In fact, they were both made by the same company, so that doesn't surprise me. And, uh, you know, I have played Pac-Man on the Intellivision, and Pac-Man looks just weird on that. It's actually pretty faithful to the arcade game, but it's hard to explain why, but it just looks weird on that. So I am curious about how Junior Pac-Man's going to look on that. Especially because Intellivision is supposed to be a 16-bit machine, so that would be kind of interesting. So um, thank you for your comments on there, 2600. And we go over to Toiletunes, who says, Hazy memory, but the first time I remember playing Junior Pac-Man was at Zaire, or possibly Venture. I enjoyed the intermission story. 20 years later, I found it for 2600, a hard, challenging game, but very enjoyable. One of my top 20 must-own games. Then came the 5200 Proto. The game code tries to center the joystick on startup, which usually caused me more trouble than it was worth. Imagine playing several games where Junior won't go right and always tries to go up. Ugh. Then came Bob. I was reluctant to purchase it first. Why can't it just be on Pac-Man Collection? How's being cheap? But I finally bit the bullet. Junior is another example of Bob's high standard of quality. It sounds like the 2600, but that doesn't detract from the experience like Dig Dug or Desert Falcon, etc. I especially appreciate the three or five lives and fast and slow options, a favorite port of a favorite game. That was a good summary right there, Toiletunes. Thank you for your thoughts on that. And I do agree on the top 20 most owned games. That's one of my favorites on the 2600. Yeah, I don't even want to think about playing the 5200 version of that. I had a 5200 for about a year or two, and I just I just couldn't stand it. And I'll be quite honest with you, a, a big sticking point for me was the controller. The controller, actually, I did find the controller worked fairly well on Centipede and really well on the Dreadnought Factor. It's like they, the, the controller was made for those kind of games, especially Dreadnought Factor. And I had the hardest time playing Pac-Man because you had to recenter the, the stick manually and it was just too easy to overcompensate. Ms. Pac-Man on the 5200 was a lot better. I found it much more playable. When you have a game that's trying to auto-center you, though, I can't imagine Junior Pac-Man in that thing, though. Oh, man. Especially if you have a Wicco Command Control, which does auto-center. And I'm going to be quite honest. I don't even like that controller, to be quite frank. I actually had one of those when I had my 5200. I had the Wicco Command Control. And... It was an improvement over the 5200 controller, but I still found it to be a pain in the butt. Calibrating it was a pain, but of course, I eventually did get it nice and calibrated so that it worked properly, but I did not like the feel of it, and it, I don't know. It just had too much give to it. I just didn't like it. But, uh, thanks again, Toilet Tunes. And Jinx offers these thoughts. My second favorite Pac-Man game. First is Bob's Super Pac-Man. This game is lots of fun, and I like the sounds in this game, and intermissions are great as well. A very well-polished port. Jinx, I can't agree with you more. Absolutely. And yeah, I gotta play some Super Pac-Man. Um, I am welcoming feedback for that, by the way, because I I have to, because of various circumstances, I have to get started on that one early. And uh, again, as more details become available, I will let you all know about that. But Guy Chicago tells us, this is by far the best version available on a home console and is one of my go-to games on the 7800. Bob has faithfully captured the arcade experience with this port. I also love the fact that he added turbo mode as an option. This game cries out for an Ed Lydon controller or other form of arcade stick. Though with Ed Kelly's Easy 78 boards coming soon, 
I am strongly considering buying a replica pack stick and wiring one up myself. Bike Guy Chicago, thanks so much for your feedback there. And yeah, I totally agree with you about that turbo mode. And um, yeah, this does cry out for an Ed Ladin controller. Uh, the thing is, though, I don't think it's just the Ed Ladin controller, but I think it's pretty much every controller I tried. The turbo mode is a little bit too fast for 100% perfect reaction time from the controller. I've noticed that. It, it doesn't happen all that much, but sometimes Junior Pac-Man will kind of overshoot a turn and not turn until the next turn comes up sometimes if uh, in turbo mode. And um, wow, as much as I have sung the praises of Ed Ladin in both this podcast and Pie Factory podcast, I have to confess, I don't know what this Easy 78 board is. I need to do some research for that, and whatever I find, I will link in the show notes at homebrew78.fab4it.com. So S. Ramirez, whose general feedback I read a little bit earlier, came back after a few plays of Junior Pac-Man and says, I really like this version of Junior Pac-Man. The gameplay is smooth, and the graphics and intermission are great, and it sounds good. Add in the Easter egg, uh, which we'll talk about later, and you now have two great games on one card. Ooh, what game could that be? <laughs> if you want to find out, keep listening after the theme song plays at the end of the episode. And he goes on to say, This game provides a great workout for my Ed Ladin Supreme 78 all-play 4-8. Yeah, me, me too, S. Ramirez 2008. I love that Ed Ladin controller I have here. I find it also works really well with the Atari CX40, the Atari 2600 stock controller. It, something about that controller, it, why, how's it, it's both a, it, it's an eight-way controller, yet it works really well with four-way games, too. What I'd really love to try, in the late 80s, I had a couple of craft switchable four-way, eight-way joystick controllers. Uh, they're right-handed, joystick on the right, fire button on the upper left. I didn't really like the four eight-way switch. I didn't find that it worked very well, but otherwise, they were really good controllers. I really liked them a lot. I'm going to maybe see if I can get a couple of them once again. I don't, I don't know whatever happened to those things. They disappeared over the years. Thanks, S. Ramirez 2008. And I can always count on Trevor for a response. Thank you, Trevor, in advance. And he says, 7800 Junior Pac-Man is a fantastic port of the arcade original. Not holding quite the charm and balance of Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man, Junior Pac-Man is still a good game in its own right, especially on the 7800, and here's why. The most frustrating item surrounding Junior Pac-Man is the default speed settings in which the monsters appear to overtake Junior in a much more aggressive and rapid fashion than in the previous titles. The problem is compounded by a large, scrolling maze playfield with no escape tunnels to slow the monsters down. A triple threat comes in the form of bonus items creating large dots which also slow down Junior. As a side note, the game isn't impossible. It is considerably more challenging than the quote-unquote parents out the gate. However, one may become just as good with this title as with the predecessors. It takes practice and patience. In an arcade setting, it certainly is understandable that may not have been feasible or desirable for a considerable number of individuals. Raise his hand. The 7800 port comes in, though, and counters the issues with the arcade original by offering the available configuration of two items. One, the number of men from three to five, and two, the option for a fast junior as opposed to his normal speed. Those two items make even the most apprehensive and dissatisfied of arcade junior pack players able to give the game another try. 
For the skeptical and extra timid, there's even a teddy bear mode which greatly decreases the difficulty of the monsters and starts the game on an easier maze. The game sounds great and looks great. Intermissions are all present, and as an extra bonus, um, keep listening past the uh, theme music at the end of the show again. <laughs> it's like having two games in one, or at least a deluxe edition along with the standard edition available with the included um, Easter egg. <laughs> so, what's wrong with it? Nothing. Seriously, it's really hard to find a negative thing about the game unless one just does not like the game itself. If you absolutely hate Junior Pac-Man, this game will probably do nothing to change that, but still respectively request to give it a try with 5 lives, fast mode, and even begin on the teddy bear maze. Unless you're hell-bent with hatred for it, there may very well be a change in attitude toward this terrific port. If you're so-so about the game, this port may very well make you a fan when incorporating the same aforementioned tweaks. For those that already like or love the arcade game, it doesn't get better than this. The best port of Junior Pac-Man available for any home console or computer, it should be a part of every 7800 owner's collection. And thanks again, Trevor. And really, I, I can't disagree with the uh, with the sentiments there. Absolutely. it's This is definitely a must-have for a 7800 owner. I would say... If you're only going to get one Atari 7800 homebrew, you're only going to spend your hard-earned money on just one. If you're a Pac-Man fan, this might be the one for you. Maybe Pac-Man Collection, but either that or Junior Pac-Man, or maybe Super Pac-Man too. I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm not going to like make any uh, specific recommendations one way or the other in that. In terms of that, there's one thing I do want to address that I didn't really mention before, and. Uh, some strategy that I've uh, learned that actually does help a little bit, and this might actually compensate for something that Trevor brought up, and that is that there aren't any escape tunnels. And as you know, in most Pac-Man games that do have escape tunnels, the monsters will slow down in said tunnels. However, of course, Junior Pac-Man does not have such an option, including the uh, Championship Edition maze and the teddy bear level. Uh, there are no escape tunnels in that, even though there are in the actual Championship Edition game. Anyway, a good way to escape the monsters is basically don't keep going in a straight line. Whenever you make a turn, you'll get a little bit of advantage. You'll get a little bit of extra step, and especially in Junior Pac-Man, because there are plenty of places where when you make a turn, there's a gap. There are no dots. And of course, remember, dots of any size will slow you down. So make as many turns as you can, and uh, you'll you'll be surprised at uh, how quickly you can you can get monsters that are on your tail off your tail. And let's see, as for the comment, as a side note, the game isn't impossible. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, there are people who have reached kill screens on this game in the arcade in normal speed mode. So yeah, it's absolutely possible. I've never done that. Um, I don't think I've ever made it past, say, the fourth or fifth maze in regular speed mode. But hey, and this is also something that we can that we should talk about here when Trevor talks about how you can configure the number of lives and have a fast junior Pac-Man option. As I mentioned earlier, there is a fast junior Pac-Man for the arcade. In fact, I just played it, um, let's see, three days prior to recording this particular segment at Underground Retrocade. And um, I think there are six other places listed on Orcade.com, A-U-R-C-A-D-E that have Junior Pac-Man high-speed version. I think what it is, you have to pop out a chip off the motherboard and put in a new one. I don't know which chip it is. 
I'm pretty sure it's the same speed up chip that you can switch out in Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man. And uh, configuring the number of lives from three to five, I do believe you can do that with the Arcade Junior Pac-Man with the dip switch settings. But yeah, I totally agree that uh, you put those two items together, you're going to have probably a better experience with Junior Pac-Man than most people would. I mean, I mentioned before, the reason that I first went to Underground Retrocade was specifically so I could play Junior Pac-Man Turbo because I felt, okay, if it's like Ms. Pac-Man Turbo, I'll be able to get a lot farther than I would without it. And I was absolutely right. So yeah, that, that Turbo mode is a blessing. It really, really is. And yeah, what's wrong with it? Nothing seriously. The only thing possibly wrong with it is if you have one of the first batch that Bob sent out that has the glitch that some consoles will expose. And uh, I believe my copy is like that, except my Atari 7800 plays it absolutely fine. The glitch doesn't actually show up at all in mine. So I'm thankful for that. And thank you again, Trevor. Oh, and Save 2600 um, has an addendum for what he said earlier. Forgot to mention that I also like how this game represents the dots more accurately. Smaller, more arcade-like versus the ones in Pac-Man Collection. I know there exists a smaller dot version of Pac-Man Collection, but why it's not the standard in the Atari Age store is a mystery. Yeah, thanks for chiming in on that uh, Save 2600. Yeah, I seem to remember some discussion about that. Um, to be quite honest, I never really noticed dot size, but yeah, if you are if you want to be arcade perfect, then yeah, you do want to pay attention to the size of the dots, I suppose. And this is interesting. I'm, I'll talk about this much more in a much future later episode, but there have been two different Pac-Man collections released. There's the standalone one that's in the Atari age store. And then there's the version that is on the Bob DiCrescenzo 30th anniversary collection multi-card that was released in a limited number a few years ago. And I have that one. Um, after I got that multi-card, I actually sold off my Pac-Man collection for, I think, 15 bucks to somebody. But I didn't really notice the difference in dot size, to be quite honest with you. I, I, it just totally didn't cross my mind, so I can't really tell for sure. I do know that the version of Pac-Man collection that's on the multi-card is an updated version. For example, you can use the right controller port to control one of the monsters, And I think there were some sound improvements made to it and maybe a few graphical improvements. So that might have been one of them. As far as I know, the gameplay is exactly the same other than that you can have a second player control one of the monsters. But that's just about it. And so wraps episode six of the Atari 7800 Homebrew podcast. And I just want to thank everybody again for your feedback and for Just in general, thank you all. If you're listening to this right now, thank you for listening. If you're not listening to this right now, you're not going to hear what I'm about to say, so you're not going to hear me just uh, say some random words. Fudge, jump, sprinkle, squat. There. So if you're not listening, you didn't hear that. Um, Anyway, um, I've gotten a lot of kind words. Thank you all so much. And uh, you can send those kind words or constructive criticisms or destructive criticisms to homebrew78 at fab4it.com. That's spelled fab, the number four, it.com. The show notes are located at homebrew78.fab4it.com. Twitter is homebrew78. And you can post comments publicly on the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast Facebook page 
or in the Atari.io forums in the podcasts section. And there's also a gaming websites and publications board on the Atari Age forum that has a thread for this podcast. And when I ask for feedback about individual games, I post them in the respective dedicated Atari 7800 message boards on each of those forums. So for episode number seven, episode number seven, I'm going to go back way, way, way back to what might be one of the very first Atari 7800 homebrews ever. I'm talking specifically about Combat 1990. And then after that, for episode eight, episode eight will be Super Pac-Man, Super Pac-Man. I don't know what I'm going to be doing for episodes nine and later yet. Um, and yeah, Pac-Man collection will eventually happen. Just don't expect it for episode nine, 10, 11, or 12. That's going to take quite a while for me to do. So, um, anyway, thank you again for listening. And you can also support this podcast financially by going to patreon.com slash homebrew 78. That's P A T R E O N.com. Basically patron with an extra E thrown in there. And if you wish to make a monthly donation, you can go right ahead and do that as little as, little as a dollar. Well, technically as little as nothing, actually, or as much as you want. And uh, that'll especially help out with these new homebrews that are supposed to be coming out anytime now. Bentley Bears Crystal Quest. Uh, and, oh, man, what else is coming out? I know it's a lot. Froggy. Froggy. So, man, that's what I'm really looking forward to, actually. But anyway, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your time. And of course, as always, I implore you, please give these hardworking homebrew developers the support they deserve. Peace, love, and Pac-Man. Let's talk about that Easter egg that I mentioned earlier in the episode. Back in April 2009, Bob offered this as the only hint. What can you do to attract a second player to this game? Bob had further said that the resulting Easter egg is that you get to play Junior Pac-Man in Plus mode as if it were a Junior version of Pac-Man Plus. The gameplay is faster. At random times, not all the monsters turn blue when you eat an Energizer. The maze walls randomly turn invisible when you eat an Energizer, etc. All the special features of Pac-Man Plus are present except for the monsters turning invisible. But just as with Pac-Man Plus, you get a different set of bonus items. A baby bottle, a cowboy hat, a pogo stick, and a skateboard. Big diehard fans of Junior Pac-Man might recognize those prizes because they were actually originally programmed in the arcade version of Junior Pac-Man, but they were never used. There are also some brand new bonus items in Junior Pac-Man Plus, specifically a toy car, a spaceship that looks a lot like the asteroid ship, a cookie, and a guitar. So how do you actually get to that secret Junior Pac-Man Plus game? In the eight years since the homebrew was first teased, Nobody was able to figure it out, or at the very least, if anybody could figure it out, they never said. 
I personally tried several times. I tried the usual Easter egg trick of holding the pause button down while firing up the system, but that didn't work. I tried following the original clue. What can you do to attract a second player to this game? I plugged in a controller into the second player port, and during a track mode, I tried starting a game with it and everything. I, I just couldn't figure it out. So I just flat out asked an Atari age, okay, is it ever, has anybody figured this out yet? So Bob actually finally came forward after eight years and revealed how to do it. So here's how you do it. Before or during the cast introduction screen, press the player two fire button and the pause button. You'll know that you've activated plus mode if you see the smaller versions of the monsters with antennas in their heads. Basically, what yum yum looks like. If you see monsters that look like yum yum, you know that you've activated plus mode. Speaking of plus mode, you'll hear about the various features of plus mode when this podcast covers Pac-Man collection in a much later episode. <laughs> 